0: How's that for a slice of fried gold?
1: Yeah, boy!
0: Have you checked the children? on. Oh, Any one of us. I'm not gonna hurt
1: you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. You're gonna need a finger boat. I'd buy that for a dollar. There's no more room in hell.
0: The dead will walk here.
1: I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare.
0: Well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's a podcast devoted to exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I'm Gary Horn. I'm getting distracted now because Todd is laughing and I don't know why. (laughs)
2: I haven't started the show. I don't know what po- Todd could possibly be laughing. At. I,
1: I looked. I looked away for a second, and in that moment, Gary started his intro, and it startled me. And that
2: was the like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gary, Gary. Did you even say your name? Did you introduce yourself?
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, he did it. Perfectly. Now I'm
2: distracted. Now I'm distracted. And Gary did such <laughs> a good job. I actually cleared the going. whole thing and just keep, uh,
1: just keep it going. It's fine. The intro with no f ups. It's an, it's an honest moment, guys. I
0: even moment. censored myself on saying fuck-ups. So I just said F-up. Well, I've ruined it yeah. now. But.
2: <laughs> you never have to censor yourself here, Gary. This is a censorship-free zone. Anyway, I'm your co-host, Justin Bishop. That other uh, cackling voice that you hear is our special guest today, writer, comedian, and, uh, fuck, I don't know. Poet. Poet. Poet laureate.
0: I'm glad Zoom at least chops out Todd when he hits, like, extreme high pitch on his laughter. <laughs>
2: yeah. One of but, these days, Todd will have a real microphone. Uh, yeah. Amazon but, will not take two months to fucking ship the thing. Yeah. And then, the, the,
1: the day is coming, you guys. The day By is time,
2: by time we're done with this Romero savini series maybe maybe todd will have a real microphone yeah him shitty computer audio i know um, but, <laughs> but it turns out during a pandemic everyone wants to do a podcast so uh, they're yeah. all in back order um, yeah <laughs> so what are you gonna do anyway welcome back to the show todd thanks for having me so this is our third week of third week right third week yeah episode three of our ongoing series that takes a look at the careers of george a romero and mr tom savini Uh, One of the greatest, I think, collaborations in in horror film history. I don't don't think that's a wild thing to say, but this is it. This is the big one, though. This is like the big, I mean, last week we talked about Martin, which was their first official collaboration. But this is the one, I think, that put that collaboration on the map.
1: Wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. This is definitely, you can definitely see they are in, um, I think they're both in top form here in terms of, what Romero is trying to say with the script, uh, his development of characters, and obviously um, Savini's work uh, m- uh, with prosthetics. Absolutely. Yeah, I think this is one of the first movies I recall. I was
0: piecing together who Tom Savini was with this movie. Obviously not when it first came out or probably not even the first couple of times I saw it. But You weren't alive when it came out, Gary. Yes, yes. Well, that's why I said, obviously. And then I said, probably not even the first couple of times I saw it. But a little later, I started to piece together. Somewhere along the way in my horror fandom, I was like, oh, Dawn of the Dead guy, Blades, that's also the guy who
1: does all the effects work. It's it's pronounced sex machine. No, wrong movie. Did you watch watch the wrong movie? (laughs) Oh, oh, damn it.
2: (laughs) So after the artistic and critical, if not financial success of Martin, the film we talked about last week, George Amaro started seriously considering revisiting the world of the living dead. He, uh, uh, the ideas for the sequel started even before Martin's production. I think we touched on that a little bit last week, but he wasn't able to pull together the finances for that. So uh, from, and then there was also the idea like from a creative standpoint, he wasn't quite sure if he wanted to revisit the zombie subgenre. For years, I've been reluctant about doing a sequel to Night of the Living Dead. Part of me was paranoid about
0: being pigeonholed as a horror guy. I've always loved the genre and grew up on it. I grew up on EC comic books. But when you want to be a filmmaker, you don't say, hey, I want to be a horror filmmaker, or I want to make jungle movies, or I want to make war movies. Back in those days, I thought I might be able to resist the genre by doing other things.
2: I like your Romero. Your
0: Romero sounds like a villain. It was a lot <laughs> And you I was, that, I've been listening to interviews with Romero,
2: and he has, like, sort of a raspy, and he's, he's, he's excitable as he, an old
0: man. He's,
1: yeah, he's like a, you can tell he's like an old hippie. You're like, hey yeah, man. Like, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. Well, he also had the hand motions of, like, Quentin Tarantino. Well, well, the last interview I was
0: watching with him, he was always doing, like, this, like. This wow. thing? <laughs> wow. is he well, wa-
1: waving in the airplane? his
0: leg. This you know. way. I'm
2: sure people would be really
0: into this. Why don't you just go watch the interviews for yourself?
2: (laughs) So as we discussed in previous episodes, the the other things that he's talking about, the other things that he tried to do included There's Always Vanilla, which is follow-up to Night of the Living Dead, and then Season of the Witch, neither of which was a success. But Martin sort of rekindled his interest in the genre, and he finally decided after doing that movie that the time was right to return to the series that had put him on the map. That return would wind up being a film that is considered one of the greatest films of his career, uh, one of the greatest films in the zombie subgenre, and honestly, often considered one of the greatest horror films of all time. It's also the film that would be integral in catapulting Tom Savini's career, kind of into the stratosphere. It was kind of a one-two punch of this movie and his next film, which was Friday the 13th. This film, of course, that we're talking about today is from 1978, George Romero's Dawn
1: of the Dead. In 1968, George Romero brought us Night of the Living Dead. It became the classic horror film of its time. Now, George Romero brings us the most intensely shocking motion picture experience for all times. Dawn of the Dead. Night of the Living Dead has ended. Dawn of the Dead is here. Get that room! <laughs> What's up?
0: up and kills. The people it kills get up
1: and kills. They must be destroyed on sight. When there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Dawn of
2: the dead. So the idea for Dawn of the Dead had come a few years earlier and about 1974, George Romero was invited by a friend and a potential investor guy by the name of Mark Mason, uh, who I believe they had gone to school together at Carnegie Mellon, but Mason was uh, in charge of a company that that was managing the Monroeville mall, the Monroe uh, shopping mall outside of Pittsburgh. Of course, this was pretty novel at the time because, Malls were not like a dime a dozen like they are now. This was actually one of the first like true shopping malls in America. So it was kind of a big deal for him to manage this and he wanted to show it to his friend George, you know? So Mason showed Romero around the mall and the two went into these kind of hidden parts of the complex where they had sealed off rooms packed with civil defense stuff. And these rooms were kind of filled up with stuff that they had stashed away, like emergency items. In the event of some sort of disaster, this would be almost like a bomb shelter kind of thing, you know, like a survival area. It's kind of crazy to think about. I doubt most malls are filled with that now, but uh,
1: at the time, what I guess. You they think.
2: Pro- well, yeah, I don't know. They run pedophile rings out of pizza shops. They
0: probably got <laughs> armories in the mall. And, uh, and, uh, what, what? I don't want
1: to what, get us canceled. By the way, what, don't really what really pizza? Care. What pizza shop is that? Oh no, Todd. <laughs> oh wait, no. I just so I can avoid it. <laughs> oh my God! Now we're canceled. sorry. <laughs> So,
2: but seeing all of this, of course, made this like light bulb go off in in Romero's head. And this is what he would recall regarding that visit. I mean, my God, here's this cathedral to consumerism and it's a bomb shelter just in case society crumbles. So it was with this inspiration that that Romero got to work on an actual screenplay for Dawn of the Dead. And of course, this whole concept is where we get the big piece of social commentary that Romero is trying to say in the film, which is something I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot on this episode, but it's, in this case, you know, Night of the Living Dead, what we talked about in that episode is how it had this sort of social commentary in regards to race and even Vietnam, which we didn't get into a whole lot, but it is there as well. But like we discussed in that episode, that was all sort of an accident. Like, Romero wasn't necessarily trying at least the racial stuff he wasn't necessarily trying to put that in the film when he wrote it this time not so much this time he was pretty intentional with what he was trying to do and of course the social comedy commentary in this is that the zombies remember their consumer drive i mean there's that quote in the film where where you know they ask why are why are the zombies here because this is a pl- place that means something to them it's what they remember doing It's coming here to shop and I think that that consumer drive makes them still feel remotely human more so than a lot of the zombies in night of the living dead did. I think see because humans have this need, this desire for like material items and zombies similarly have a need that they can't quite explain. You know, they don't know. It's just like an instinct to, you know, eat
1: human flesh. So I I think that's, if, if that hasn't been a discussion in like some, College level psych courses or philosophy courses. It definitely should be because it's it's a really interesting thing that that they need it. They they psychologically need it, but don't physically need it. But the zombies they don't need it. They want it. That's the yeah they yeah yeah, they want it. So in their subconscious, that want was such a strong desire. It was such a strong emotion that they're you know a zombie brain interprets it as a need so it yes you know carries them back there it's it's a very you could you could probably talk for hours about that one
0: but justin like what you're what he's saying with the as far as uh you know their desire this like intrinsic thing that they're just desiring gives them more humanity i think that's really interesting because it's i think that's probably the uh the hippie in Romero or something that he still eventually yes. has to humanize the zombies. And you get the, even more of that, like as it goes into day of the dead and stuff, Yeah, and, like absolutely. he, he's still giving them something else and they're not just like, you know, just stone cold, just they're not sharks. Like, well, yeah, yeah. They are, they hide. are
2: mindless creatures at this point, but they're still a reminder that this, this shell of a body that is now just a, a <clears> living corpse did once house the consciousness of, of a person. Right. You know, this isn't just a monster. This was somebody's brother or dad or, or something at some point in time. Right. And and the, the whole consumerism thing, I mean, Todd said, you know, there have been papers written on this. This is a very well-researched, well-spoken about aspect of this film. Probably the thing you hear most about this film when you start looking into it is the metaphor between zombieism and consumerism. And again, that's that comes from George Romero kind of being, being a hippie type. Uh, and it's a pretty obvious metaphor, but, but, but what Romero does that's so genius in regards to that is that he also makes, not only are the zombies you know, remembering this place as this like, what's he called? A, a cathedral to consumerism, but the heroes of the film are enchanted by all this stuff as well. Like they, you know, they're excited to have this mall all to themselves and you see them on like shopping sprees grabbing stuff and they're excited about it even like excited about getting money which is meaningless at this point. Yeah. Uh, even and while while they're out shopping it leaves you know there's we're getting I'm getting a little further ahead in the plot of the film but when they're out sh- shopping I put that in quotes because obviously they're more looting than anything but they leave Fran behind who's pregnant and she almost gets killed by the Hare krishna zombie in that scene. Uh, while they're out just having fun and and you know grabbing all the cool stuff they can find and Fran is the one who sees the mall not as like a fortress to defend, which seems to be their thing like they the men stake a claim on the mall like this is our place now, this is where we have this is our stuff uh but she she sees it as like more of a of a prison in fact that's a quote from her she says uh you're all she says like i'm afraid you're all hypnotized by this place, all of you she says it's, it's, no, it's also bright and neatly wrapped that you don't see that it's a prison too like she sees that they're and they're just enchanted entranced by the idea of having all of this stuff at their fingertips
1: well it's kind of interesting to look at it as you know to that she sees it as a prison and um, and the guys see it as you know a castle a fortress and then if I can sort of divert for just a second here a big, walking dead fan the books uh, a big fan of the books and when the group of survivors encounters the prison um they see it as a fortress because it is built as such so they find freedom within it but at the same time it's still you know when attacked they realize that they have nowhere to run and that it is still a prison so i think seeing those two juxtaposed together um for me, was really interesting in looking at, the, uh, looking at the metaphors of those structures and what it means for the survivors.
0: Uh, there's a lot to unpack here, obviously, but two quick points. Uh, one is that I literally read something today uh, as I was getting ready for this episode where the person actually said, do you think that Walking Dead was inspired by this movie?
2: I was like, what? Seriously, okay. I, was like, <laughs> I was like, wow, gosh, do you, <laughs> do you think? <laughs> and, uh, well, let's see, and
0: um, yeah, and then uh, one of the things I love about Romero that you were kind of touching on, though, is that you're right with Fran and and really with everybody, he's got a great way of he never lets anybody be right all the time, right? Like, even even Ken Foray in this movie is uh, he's the badass at the beginning and he's got kind of the ideas, but then he's one of the ones who's like trapped in the mall idea I'm yeah. like, he's the first one that says like, no, maybe, maybe this is where we need to be. Let's hold yeah. up here. You know?
2: And whereas Fran is saying like, we need to take the stuff that we need and then just keep moving. But they, and they get co- so complacent there that they turn. So the, the, the little upstairs area, which is the, uh, the civil defense areas that Romero saw on his tour, although they couldn't actually film those scenes at the mall, they filmed those back in a in a studio. I think they actually turned their offices at Laurel Productions into those sets because they were just too cramped to actually film there. But they turned those into little apartments, and you've got their like bed, and, and they, they start decorating it with plants and all kinds of stuff. Like they're turning this into a home. Uh, they're they're fully complacent, and and that sort of as we'll talk about in a few minutes, uh, kind of becomes their downfall in the end. But there, even when Roger gets bitten, when he's dying and he sort of starts going, uh, a little loopy, you know, as yeah. he's dying, but he yeah. even starts like whooping and screaming, like we whipped them all and we got it all. Like he's still preoccupied with their victory of securing all this stuff. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. That, that, I mean, yeah, that he's even, that they're not much different.
0: I mean, in a sense, like they're not much different than the zombies in those, like, uh, built in carnal desire, Not carnal yes. desires, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Not carnal desires. <laughs> not, not, <laughs> not, not that kind of zombie movie. <laughs> that, but. These zombies are
2: fucking everything. <laughs> they're just like pumping like the poles, on the escalators, Forty zombies. <laughs> so, not unlike the screenplay for Night of the Living Dead, Romero's early draft for Dawn was dark bitter and cynical but he would later decide to lighten it up a little bit for for a new era because he felt like night you know night kind of played into the zeitgeist of its time the 60s were you know for for all the summer of love and flower child bullshit out there the 60s were a pretty dark time you had vietnam you had the the assassination of jfk like the 60s were not all flowers and and acid like like you know the movies could sometimes make you want to think But he wanted to also tap into the zeitgeist of the 70s with Dawn of the Dead, which is a little bit brighter. I mean, obviously, there's still some dark shit going on there as well, but a little bit brighter and a little more optimistic and definitely more consumer-driven. And what he tried to do to kind of characterize the 70s, like he decided that it was, this is a quote from him, he said that it was all about rock and roll, splashier colors, and consumerism. That's how he saw the 1970s. So these were the building blocks of his story before he decided on any of the characters or anything else. He was like, this is what this is going to be about. This is what it's going to feel like.
1: You know, you look at things like um, the big boom of uh, products and whatnot after World War II. And it was like, you know, the cars became flashier and, you know, kind of more spaceship like and whatnot. And I think with, you know, right there from the fifties into the sixties was kind of like that big crest and, you know, things had started to plateau a little bit so that by the seventies, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing the, the swing, the, the pendulum is definitely swinging the other way at that point.
2: Yeah. And of course it would get even worse in the eighties, which was the, the decade of greed, but yeah, a little side note as well, uh, we, we didn't really talk about this last week, but there were discussions of a sequel to Night of the Living Dead a little bit earlier on, but Romero and Night of the Living Dead screenwriter, John Russo kind of disagreed on the direction that the series would go in. So because Night of the Living Dead was in public domain, they both actually legally were able to do their own sequels. Uh, so Russo did a novel called Return of the Living Dead. If that name sounds familiar, there's there's a reason, because it was the loose basis for the film that would come out in the mid-'80s. Uh, of course, Romero would end up doing this movie, although this movie ended up being, by Writers Guild terms, not a sequel. Uh, it, it didn't fall into that category because it's it actually never truly references the, the events of the first film. It doesn't have any of the same characters or anything like that. So by Writers Guild terms, it actually it's not a sequel, even though, you know, as, as viewers, we know that it is, but that's, and that's why at the beginning, you don't see like anything that says something like uh, based on characters created by George Romero and John Russo, because right, those characters, that's not the case. There are, those characters are not
1: there. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting in, in terms of, you know, because the first one was made 10 years earlier, it's kind of like, see, and you know, Land of the Dead wasn't for another what, 15 years or so? Land 15, of the 15? Dead
2: was, no, like 20, after this? Yeah. Like 25 oh, years okay. Plus. It was okay. in the early
1: 2000s. But it's kind of like interesting. 2004 or so, maybe, 2007, something that's like that. That's right, it was. that's right. Yeah, it was, after, um, well, it was after I graduated high school anyway. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it's interesting to think of these as direct sequels when they do take place so far apart. Yeah. Um, like right. it could take place in any time. But. Well, you, you, and you kind of have to take that, you, you kind of have to
2: suspend your disbelief a little bit, because in the time of the story, this would be taking place pretty much, this opens pretty much immediately after the events of Night of the Living Dead. Right. Obviously, by the fashions and things like that, a lot more time has, has changed. But Romero wasn't really concerned with any of that, with that kind of continuity. It wasn't right. important to the story he was trying to say. So Romero and his uh, producer, Richard Rubenstein, who we talked about last episode, they were able to get a few local investors involved uh, to fund this new sequel to The Night of the Living Dead. Uh, but the money that they raised fell pretty far short of the $1.5 that they had projected for the budget of the film. And eventually the unfinished script, the partial script, ended up in the hands of Dario Argento. Uh, Dario Argento, we, we are probably all aware of him. Uh, great Italian horror filmmaker, one of the seminal figures of the Gialli subgenre of Italian horror film. And he was a huge fan of The Night of the Living Dead. Dario Argento, by the way, before he was a filmmaker, was actually a, a film critic. And he was a film critic when Night of the Living Dead came out. And he, he was a big proponent for it as a critic at that time. And of course, as we discussed last episode, Argento was also instrumental to bringing Martin, to European audiences. And he would once again prove an important part of Romero's career because he helped to get a big chunk of the financing for this new film. His brother and collaborator, Claudio Argento, would become producers on Dawn of the Living Dead.
0: The way George Romero tells that story is like, um, that he, you know, had done the mall thing like he talked about and then had started working on something. And he said it was just like random that he got the call from Dario Argento. And he said that, like, literally the call was Dario Argento calling him up and being like, oh, George, do, do you want to work on another night? And he's like, uh, actually, I am writing
2: something. He's like, I sent you to play tickets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he tried to, he told him that, like, oh, you know, George, I, I guess kind of acted like he was having a little bit of writer's block. And Argento was like, you come to Rome. Yeah. You're right, you're right here. And his, his idea was like, hey, maybe a you know, change of scenery would end up you know, it would help you, which is exactly actually what they did. Like, yeah. uh, Argento, Argento paid for Romero and his now wife, Christine, Christine Forrest from Martin, now Christine Romero, uh, to move to Rome and live in an apartment for a little while, uh, where which is where Romero completed the script. I want to say already, to knocked Romero. it out
0: in like three weeks.
2: Yeah. And, part of their agreement, Romero and Argento, was that Romero would retain the final cut of the film for the U.S. market. But Argento had the right to re-edit the film for its European release. Not only its European release, but actually its release in all uh, non-English speaking countries except for South America, which was excluded for some reason. But uh, unlike typical Hollywood producers, Argento was very hands-off. He had no intention to alter Romero's vision, at least for that American cut. He said to Romero, he's like, you make the film that you want to make. And he just let... Romero go go crazy
1: with it it's I mean it's actually kind of smart to basically say you know let someone do most most sure. of the most of the heavy lifting and well you if just you're kinda, a fan
2: yeah a yeah
1: fan of Romero so why
2: go oh man I'm such a big fan of your work and then hire them and then go oh no but you should do it like this well if you're a fan of their work just let them work which yeah. is something that Hollywood producers don't get because they'll be like they they come they they recruit directors all the time because they're fans of their past stuff. Well, right. Just just let them do their thing again. <laughs>
1: you yeah.
2: know? Yeah. So filming for Dawn of the Dead began on November thirteenth, nineteen seventy seven. Actually, originally under the title Dawn of the Living Dead, uh, the crew was able to shoot actually at that Monroeville Mall, the same mall that George Romero saw uh, for a pretty nominal fee. They paid about forty grand, forty thousand dollars to film there, which gave them access to. I mean imagine the number of sets that they would have had to build to recreate this but in the mall they they were able to access out of the 143 stores in the mall 130 of them were available to them with there were certain restrictions uh the main one being that they were only allowed to shoot at night when the mall was closed because uh, and and it, so they would get there like 8:30 9.00 in, in the evening the mall closed at 9 but there were some bars in the mall that didn't close until like 2.00 a.m. so they couldn't start shooting until 2 a.m. They could get there a little earlier, start working on makeup and things like that. And then the Muzak in the mall would automatically come on at 7 a.m. So they basically, most nights, could only shoot from 2 a.m. till 7 a.m.
1: I think that's, I think, you know, any film student should definitely study this as a crash course in production management just because yeah. such a short amount of time and those unique restrictions on a location it's yeah you gotta- well no,
2: it, this would be even harder to do now because all the malls are owned by giant corporations now they're not going to let right. anyone come in because they basically they were given the freedom to do whatever they wanted in that mall as long as they didn't like rob the bank that, <laughs> and they didn't yeah. like damage and steal items out of JCPenney and stuff yeah. Uh, I mean, they have motorcycle, a motor, an actual motorcycle gang riding their motorcycles through the mall at the end. And that's yeah.
1: like,
2: <laughs> can you imagine anyone allowing that now? It's insane. God. Yeah. And those, those motor, that motorcycle gang, we'll get to in a minute, but in that scene where George Romero talks about in interviews that when they were those things were so loud that it was like vibrating the walls and made all the, when you see the like fire alarms and stuff going on, going off in the movie... That yeah. actually happened. Like the vibration <laughs> sent off all the alarms. Um, oh wow! <laughs> so once again, you know they've got a location. It's time to start casting. And once again, Romero decided against going the typical Hollywood route. And this, and, and he didn't cast from his native Pittsburgh this time either. Even though that's where they were shooting, instead he went to New York City, which is where Rubenstein was located. That's where he was based. So Rubenstein helped to conduct the initial auditions, but it was Christine uh, Forrest, Christine Romero, who made the final decisions, giving her the credit of, she's credited as the casting director in the film, and she was the assistant director on the film. So she did a lot of this. Uh, And especially challenging in the casting process was the choosing of the female lead. So in the decade since Night of the Living Dead, the reason they, they wanted, the reason this was so important to them, it's because in the decade since *Night*, several revisionist critics had looked back at that film and characterized Barbara as this sort of typical damsel in distress, you know. Including uh, Gary Horn. Including modern <laughs> critic Gary Horn. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: so, I believe my exact words is she fucking sucks. Yeah, that, those were your exact words, yeah. And, and then, of course, and not to mention other females in the film, you know, Marilyn Eastman's character, she stands up to her husband, but she doesn't do a whole lot. And then Judy is clumsy enough to cause her and Tom to die in the film. So the the women are essentially useless in that film. And Romero took that criticism in stride. So he wanted a stronger woman in this role. So when Chris Romero, when they they cast Galen Ross, Galen Ross was an acting student who'd never performed professionally before. So she was a very, very much a newcomer. Romero knew he had something special and he knew that pretty much immediately when they started filming because in the, the airfield scene towards the beginning, he asked her to scream. That's what was in the script. And she refused. She was determined to make her character tougher than your typical horror movie heroine of the time. And she's like, I'm not doing that, George. I'm not going to scream. And he was just like, you know, you're probably onto something. That's probably a good idea she also like uh,
0: argued to like fight with zombies and stuff like yeah. she was uh she was very adamant about her character being strong which yeah i think pays off it's a big i mean you know you had some good ideas for for barbara in the last one with shock and that sort of thing but it's just nice to see the the woman is just not completely cut out of this that she's actually also like she starts off a little like lost for a second like she, she's as in shock as anybody should be, but she she starts to get a survival instinct too, and yeah. uh, and she she even has the secondary thing of being pregnant, which is makes it even more dangerous for her. It feels like she's in more danger, and uh, the, the, just sta- all, the
1: stakes are
0: the stakes are higher. Yeah,
1: yeah there's just sure. a lot
0: a lot of uh, a lot of depth to her
2: character in this one as compared absolutely. to like Barbara. Oh, now, absolutely, yeah, and so Ken Forey who has gone on to become like probably the most iconic of the actors in this film, as far as, you know, he, he still appears in horror movies. He's a big fixture in Rob Zombie's movies and things like that. And he's the guy who you see on the horror movie convention circuit and stuff. He kind of got his role through a pretty typical audition, but uh, David Emge and Scott Reininger, who play Flyboy and Roger respectively, they actually, they, they worked in a restaurant in New York. They were struggling actors. And as many struggling actors do, they worked in a restaurant because they couldn't get acting work. So they worked in a restaurant. Uh, I think Scott Reininger was maybe a server and David Emge was a cook. And George Romero came in one night. And that's how they actually met. And and they actually started talking. And Romero's like, do you want to come try out from a movie? And Scott's like, well, yeah, let's do it. And so that's, that's how it happened. And he got his friend David to come as well. And that's how they got the two, two of the four lead roles in the film. It's just, you know, through their job, through total happenstance.
0: Yeah, and, the, the, the most fun thing about, like, uh, they, I, I think I saw this in an interview with David M.G., but they talk about Scott Reininger uh, sliding down the escalator, that that yeah. would later become, like, they think that's why, like, blocks were put, it, put up there. All the escalators, they because like them. speculate yeah. about that, like <laughs> because of
2: that stunt that he slides down. But and uh, that was a um, that was an improvised scene. Uh, Romero was very open to improvisation on the set of this film and on all of his films because you know we we've discussed this in, in the past, but he shot a lot of material because. Romero's favorite part of the filmmaking process is editing and he likes to have a lot of stuff to choose from. So if somebody's like, Hey, can I try this? He's down, like, try it. And maybe we'll put it in. Maybe it'll work. And that's a scene where Scott Reininger was just like, why don't I just slide down? And was like, sure, let's do it. That's, that's kind of one of the more memorable moments in the film.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, with, with the improv, you can get those, you know, genuine moments. And I think, you know, for these characters and for this production that that kind of lends to the, the authenticity of it especially when you're in the part where they're having
2: fun you know right
1: especially when you're talking about them treating the place like it's their own and they're super jazzed about you know having all this stuff to themselves absolutely yeah it's
0: it's funny that's one of the exact I've been reading a little bit about just because of watching this movie again reading a little bit about uh Ken Foree and I because I just love that guy like there's something just really likable about him and um Yeah. And he talks about that, that very thing with, with Romero, you know, when he's asked about like his favorite directors and he lists like Romero and Rob Zombie, he talks about that. He has nothing but good things to say about both guys that they're extremely collaborative, just kind of trust you to do your job. And, uh, whereas like a lot of other directors he's worked with have been, you know, dictators on set and (laughs) stand here, now move here. And, you know, being very, you know, he almost feels wooden having to do exactly what they say. But, uh, he, he's, he's interesting, you know, he knew Dwayne Jones, I didn't know that until I was reading about him, but he knew Dwayne Jones from Night of the Living Dead, and he had no idea that the audition he was going to was for Dawn of the Dead, uh, but he, he, you know, I think was working off Broadway, and, and just in New York, and he took the audition and went and uh, got the role, and he, uh, he says he had no idea during the making of this movie that it would mean anything for him or his career, he said, but you can ask my wife about that. I'm generally wrong about a lot of things. I thought rap <laughs> music was going to be a fad. So he's <laughs> <laughs> like, turns out I'm just not good at this. <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out he, yeah, he becomes like an ultimate cult actor yeah. out of yeah. this whole thing. So. More than anyone else. And the yeah, characters like Scott here. Scott doesn't, he doesn't isn't. do a lot. He really doesn't, no. He comes back for the remake of this movie. Oh, is he like Yeah, he plays the general, like, in a little bit role. But that's, that's like, literally, I think his last movie he did was in 84, and then that movie's, like, 2004.
2: Wow. Wow, Jeez. The characters here, I think, are much more well-rounded than in Night of the Living Dead. And we have more of a chance to care about them because we're, we're given a little more breathing room with them. You know, we get to know them a little bit more. We become invested in them in a way that night's kind of short in time frame because it all happens in one night. That kind of wouldn't allow you to do that. But this takes place over the course of weeks or months. It's kind of hard to say, but over a long period of time, so you get to time to kind of hang out with the characters and watch them settle into this new life. And I, I think another part of that is that the death in, in this movie, and Dawn of the Dead, isn't inconsequential. The only death in, in like Night of the Living Dead that you really feel, I think, is Johnny's because of the impact that you see it has on Barbara. Uh, but here the characters kind of die off throughout the film. Roger dies fairly early on. I mean, he doesn't die in the finale. He lasts a while, but he he dies a good a good bit of time before the end of the film. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, he gets bitten, turned into a jo- zombie, and then Peter has to shoot him. And that's a you know at this point they're very good friends, and that's a that's a decision that has a lot of impact both on Peter and on the audience. Yeah, you
1: definitely you definitely feel that. I think you feel that death more than the death of Johnny for, for oh, yeah, Barbara, because so you've gotten yeah. to know him more. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and Knight Romero
2: also hinted at the idea that humans are a as as big of a threat to the survival of of the heroes as the zombies, because you get you know, kind of the infighting between you know, Dwayne Jones and and Harry Cooper, things like that. But especially, of course, the the redneck posse at the end of the movie who ends up killing our hero. Right. Uh, But here his, his intentions are pretty clear regarding that from the very first scene, because one of the very first, the the opening of this movie is one of my favorite openings of a horror movie of all time. It, it immediately puts you in the shit. Like it is chaos immediately in that, uh, in, in the the newsroom where people are just yelling at each other and there's misinformation and like, it's wild. Like it just throws you right into it, into the middle of, of this chaos.
0: I kind of dug that because it's like i love in, it in night they're they're also like constantly like there's a tv like we got to get on and what's the news saying and stuff like that it's just it's cool to see and obviously there's infinite amounts of different places the different angles this has been explored from now but it's just cool to see if the sequel that goes to the exact like the other side of things yeah just uh you know, and, and really, in, in day, he's gonna do the same thing. Like, where are the three places? Like, we're at ground level, then we're in like the media area, and then we're like in the army, basically. Yeah. You know, in day. So,
1: but you and- see, even even in the uh, even in Zack Snyder's remake, he kind of does that, pairing it down at what ends up being the opening title sequence, op- the opening credit sequence. It's it's a, it's a lot of that news footage, and you know, from different angles and all over the world, so that you get. If, if for some reason you're unfamiliar with the world of Dawn of the Dead, by the time the opening credits are done, you have a good overview of what state the world is in.
2: Yeah. I mean, and, and this the opening here kind of does that same thing, but he's also introducing you to characters because you meet right. Galen Ross, you you meet Flyboy in that first scene, Fran and Flyboy. And then in the very next scene, you meet the police, you meet Roger and Peter. And in that scene, one of the very first characters you meet is this, shitty racist cop who's just relishing at the idea of being able to kill brown people without any consequences and he yeah. he throws out every like racial slur in the yeah. book and immediately that's like romero saying listen the zombies might be sort of like monsters but humans are pretty shitty too yeah
1: <laughs>
2: and, and that's a concept that rings kind of goes throughout the entire film all the way through the finale where the biker gang becomes the biggest threat to survival that our pro- protagonists have probably faced yet even more so than a lot of the zombies yeah and the thing is that 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 finale ties into the film's views on materialism as well because the the bikers aren't initially a threat to the lives of the heroes they're not hunting them they're they're killing zombies you know yeah they let zombies in which is you know kind of fucked up but it's cuz they want to machete their head off while driving by on a motorcycle which s- sounds fun
1: yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> but they are a threat to our hero's stuff yeah they're a threat to the stuff that they they now see as theirs because and that's proven because the final showdown is really kickstarted by flyboy's desire to protect their stuff like when he rings out that first shot he you know he aims his gun and he says this is ours we took it and that's what starts the fight between them and the bikers. It's not the zombies. It's it's Flyboy wanting to make sure that they don't take his stuff.
1: Yeah, the the monument to cons- to consumerism.
2: Yes. Yeah. So for the rest of the parts in the film, you've got your leads, but for the, just like in his previous films, Romero relied on friends and family and and willing strangers to fill the roles. And and most of the bikers who are in that final scene who, by the way, were not in the original script. That was added during filming. That was something that they added later on. They were played by a real-life motorcycle club called The Pagans that's based in Pittsburgh. Yeah, so they had... Re- and they were apparently really nice guys, but, you know, they were an actual motorcycle gang. That's cool.
0: honestly something to, like, the friends and family kind of thing that Romero has going on with a lot of the casting. I feel like... Yeah. It, I don't know. It makes it feel different. It, it almost
1: seems like... It definitely has like, a more
2: like, regional filmmaking, like, independent filmmaking
1: yeah feel to it exactly and I think I've mentioned this before about how you know some of those directors and you can look throughout their careers they end up working with a lot of the same people but you know when you're so tied to uh you know a geographic location like Pittsburgh Pennsylvania you know you you can't help you can't help but bring your family in on what you're doing so yeah makes sense Um, most of the extras I saw
0: you would get uh he would get a, uh, what was it? It was a dollar in cash, a donut, and a Dawn of the Dead t-shirt. That hey, was your
2: pay. I would do that. I mean, yeah. I would do it too. Just yeah. for a chance to be a zombie? <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, you don't even have to give me the donut, but I'll take the donut. <laughs> <laughs> I will eat that donut. <laughs> I will eat the donut. So Tom Savini, having worked with Romero on Martin, was hired as the film's makeup effects supervisor, but he would also volunteer for an on-screen role as well. Uh, he played a biker named Blades, and his, his assistant, a guy named Tasso, played Sledge, is the, the guy's name. He's the guy with the sledgehammer who ends up getting, like, his stomach ripped out yeah. by, uh, it, by the, the zombies, which is a great effect, by the way. They, the way they did that is they, built, they had, like, this rubber chest that they built, and they went and got a bunch of pig intestines. Tasso went and got a bunch of pig intestines. And they put them on Tasso's stomach, put the fake chest over it, and then let the zombies, like, tear at the rubber chest and they're taking out like actual pig intestines and awesome. eating them. Super gross. That's well,
1: awesome. that's kind of, they did that. They did the similar thing in uh, Shaun of the Dead, didn't they? Using pig intestines. Well, I mean the similar effect where. Oh you yeah. Got, yes. You got the body stretched out and it's. Yeah, that was a little
2: more elaborate, but yeah. Yeah. Shaun this also like,
0: works at Foree Electronics,
1: just for the. Th- right.
2: Yes. Let's not go through every let's, uh, let's, Romero let Romero reference in Shaun I of the Dead. I wrote them all down. <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> No, but hey, did, uh, I hey, wanted... did you
2: know "Shaun of the Dead" rhymes with "Dawn of the Dead"?
0: Oh my God! <laughs> How did I miss
1: that? A <laughs> minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute!
0: <laughs> uh, we should also point out that uh, George Romero, uh, well, once again on the on the production of this, we'll, we'll see this many times, I think, in his lifetime. Savini uh, was on a set that couldn't afford stunt people, so he just did it himself.
2: Yeah, and, so he was and, this, and some guy. pretty big stunts too.
0: Yeah, like, I read re- like cast people talking about like, if we did everything Tom wanted to do,
2: we'd still be filming the movie right now. <laughs> <laughs> he, he drives a motorcycle through a glass plate window. Uh, when his character dies, Ken Forey shoots him and he falls over the balcony to uh, the bottom to into the fountain, like he did that stunt. He fell into a bunch of boxes and mattresses. And wow. missed the first time. Yeah, yeah, he like landed on his feet. <laughs> so, so he's a he's yeah. a fun guy. Yeah, he's he's willing to do anything. He says he really the
0: glass is. the glass paid. When I remember reading something about, he wished Romero had shot it in slow mo because he thought it was cool, and uh, Romero just disagreed with him on that because he he just said, you know, I, I think his actual quote was, uh, Romero said, "I think it's anti and pop," but i just i like things in real time not slow-mo
2: so huh. no <laughs> so most of the film's specialty zombies like the ones we talked about earlier the nun zombie the nurse the Hare krishna zombie they were played by local actors and friends and the majority of the living dead extras though were just played by locals who'd heard about the shoot and just wanted to be a part of it like again it's pittsburgh's not a big filmmaking area so hey you want to come play a a zombie in the sequel to night of the living dead hell yeah let's do it you know why not and john amplis the star of martin he was put in charge of recruiting zombie extras he actually has a credit as a uh zombie casting director or something interesting like that in the the opening credits but he's put in charge that was his job recruiting zombie extras and he oversaw about 15 to 1600 volunteers and all which included several amputees who would play uh, limb deficient members of the living dead you know the guys if you're seeing a zombie that's missing an arm or a leg that was a guy who was actually missing an arm or a like, leg, playing that.
1: So the crippled masters of the Living Dead.
2: Oh my god, dude! I thought I <laughs>
1: right when
0: I was reading all this, I knew that somehow crippled masters was going to get referenced in this episode.
2: <laughs> Leave it to Todd. Yes, uh, uh, you're welcome. Uh, but those zombie extras were having a lot of fun on set as well. It sounded like this was a big fun party of a set. Uh, they Savini tells a story where they heard where a bunch of zombies got drunk and stole a golf cart and drove it through the mall and then crashed it into a pillar, which according to Romero, is the only actual damage that occurred to the mall. So that's pretty good. They had insurance. So Uh, then other zombies would like take their pictures in full makeup and post the pictures like in the mall's photo booth and others would like, they'd wear their makeup around the mall to try to freak out the old people who were there for their like morning walk and others would just leave the set in full makeup and like drive down the highway home dressed as a zombie just to mess with people (laughs) which all sounds exactly what i would do if i were were one of these zombies i've always wondered how you
0: direct zombies and especially like hundreds of extras or whatever doing zombie stuff but
2: what's the thing romero doesn't he just lets them do their thing
0: yeah i was gonna say like he doesn't he, he says he doesn't really give them direction he says he feels like if you told them like you know, zombies walk like this and everybody's just going to be do, doing their best attempt at doing that specific thing that you said. And uh, so instead, he's just like, be dead.
2: Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Although he does point
0: what, out that David M.G.'s uh, walk in this one is his uh, overall favorite zombie walk. It's like, walk, a, he, walk.
2: he's a good zombie. Yeah. That's a good zombie walk. Uh, but yeah, he just kind of gave them carte blanche to do whatever they wanted to do. Like, what is your version of a, a dead a living dead being, yeah. You know, so that's why they're all kind of a little bit different, which I think makes it more interesting. Honestly, it's kind of fun.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, and you hear you hear about the uh, the zombie school for the Walking Dead show down in Atlanta. That you know, it's it's actually like they put these new ex, you know extra these new actors like through this rigorous thing to make sure that they get this. Uh, you know, to, that they get consistency across the board. And I wonder if they're losing a little bit of uh, artists, you know, a little bit of creativity by doing that.
2: Yeah, uh, maybe. So Savini and his team of eight assistants followed Marilyn Eastman's basic approach to, uh, to make up for most of the zombie extras, which basically is they apply blue or gray face paint on them to, to make them look dead. But, uh, by the way, a little side note, one of those eight assistants was a guy named uh, Joseph Pilato, Joe Pilato. He also doubled as a police captain on screen in Dawn towards the beginning and would be most famous for his role as Captain Rhodes in Day of the Dead a decade later, which is something we'll talk about in a few weeks. And he's also going to pop up next week as well. For the specialty zombies, though, the, the makeup was more elaborate. Uh, they used you know foam, latex, wounds, applied to actors' faces, things like that. And unlike on night of the living dead the film was being shot in bright color so they couldn't really use chocolate syrup for the blood anymore instead the blood in this film has this kind of cartoonishly bright red color a color that savini initially objected to because he thought it looked phony or as savini put it looked like melted red crayons
0: yeah i think think they were using blood packets or the blood packets were a mixture of uh food coloring peanut butter and cane syrup
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Kara Syrup is a pretty typical, uh, pretty typical fake blood base. Uh, But Savini was eventually overruled by the director, by Romero, who he thought that fake looking blood helped to capture the comic book feel that he was going for. And I imagine, I'm just going to go on an um and I'm going to imagine that. Producer Dario Argento was pretty happy with it as well, because that's the exact color of the blood in Argento. That's the, that's the blood of Italians. That's what Italian blood looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and the bigger challenge, of course, was going to be the film's gore effects. Romero knew that he'd never be able to equal the sheer terror of Night of the Living Dead, and he never even intended to try. This is not the kind of movie he was trying to make this time around. Instead, he helped to just go with over-the-top kills, starting with one of the very first one in the film, it was which is a, a guy's head exploding. Like yeah. that's one of the very first uh, things that they did. So that scene, the head, they made, they made a plaster cast of Galen Ross, who plays Fran, which was originally supposed to be used at the end of the film, which we'll talk more about in a minute. And what they did is they filled the head, this plaster head with food scraps. They in that particular scene, they painted it brown because he was playing a Puerto Rican put some like a beard and stuff on it. They filled it with food scraps and then shot it with a shotgun. That's <laughs> <laughs> so. That's how they did it. So,
1: i have to ask.
2: Do you guys have any favorite like gore effects or kills in the film? Honestly, that
1: effect that you just that you just shared—the exploding head—I'm um, I don't usually audibly. Uh, respond to films that much but that one got an oh shit out of me <laughs> straight up dude same for me it's been so
0: long since i've seen this movie and i don't know why just life gets gets away from you sometimes the years the years keep coming and they don't stop coming <laughs> the uh it had been a while and for some reason i just wasn't ready for it would it yeah especially when you go from like knight to martin and then all of a yeah. sudden the very first few minutes of this movie Freaking head blows up. Yeah, I I literally was sitting on the in the chair, just like, oh shit. Yeah, that that escalated quickly. (laughs) Yeah, but but to be honest, like all of it looks great, and even if it is, you know, I, I I can see how some people might say it's cheesy. I don't think it's cheesy, but you know, they really do just like bite chunks out of people, and there's something visceral about it in this movie that that I loved it. I loved every single one of them. Uh, but if I had to pick a favorite, I'm going to go helicopter zombie.
2: Helicopter uh, zombie
0: is a good one. Yeah, yeah I think uh, yeah. I think that was Savini's friend who was known for having a low forehead. Anyway, I would never <laughs> want that to be a thing I'm known for. Correct, <laughs> <laughs> <Right. laughs>
2: low forehead. But oh, hey, look, there's Justin, the guy with the low
1: forehead. <laughs> right. <laughs> But, uh, well, it's I, yeah because i remember i remember when because uh cat saw that one too and i think because it happens and you're just and you're you're taking it a second and then they're like wait did that did that just happen yeah <laughs> is that is that really what happened it's a great
2: effect they just they built this like foam like two inches of head and ran some tubing some blood tubing through it yeah. and they had like fishing line at several places throughout the uh the 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 fake part of the head at the top. And when it came time, they just yanked on the fishing line, pulled off the top of the head and then the blood spurted out. Great effect. <laughs> yeah. Fairly low fi by today's standards. And th- that's one of the early things. The thing is on this film, as far as the special effects go, George Romero does not, he didn't storyboard, he knew he wouldn't have the time or the budget to storyboard. So he wrote his script out in like heavy detail. It's a very long script because he wrote a lot of the action in detail, especially in the first half. And that, you know, that was one of those kills. And a lot of the stuff early on in the first half of the film were fairly well planned out in advance. But a lot of the kills in the second half of the film were improvised within, sometimes within minutes of shooting. Because, I mean, like we mentioned, the the motorcycle gang was not originally in the script. That's something they came up with during filming. So they couldn't have planned that stuff too far ahead of time. And one thing that Savini does that's so like brilliant something that i don't know that anyone else could really do is that he's just coming up with these gags these gore effects on the fly like just out of nowhere you know like like one of my favorites is uh, the story where they so they figure out towards the end of the film that roger's running around he's got he, he ties a sweater around his waist and then they realize in the next scene oh it, just in the chaos of everything on set they forgot have the sweater on him so they needed a shot where he loses the sweater. So they call Savini and they're like Savini huh. we got we got to come up with a way for you to lose the sweater. And they get John Harrison who's a friend of Romero's who we'll talk actually talk about more next week but John Harrison uh, was is mostly known as a composer but he was on set they got him to they put him in zombie makeup and they're like they're they ask him hey can you be a zombie we need somebody in this scene and they got like in two minutes, Savini just put together this effect. Savini happened to have a retractable screwdriver in his arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: just carry those so around.
2: They filmed this scene where this uh, maintenance man zombie grabs Roger as he, he goes by. The two struggle on the ground. Roger pulls the the screwdriver from his from the guy's from the zombie's belt and jams it into his ear. And they had like blood pumping through the screwdriver. This is just a thing that I guess Savini had just in case he might need it one day, but they threw that together like in like literally 2 minutes. They they just threw this together. Uh and, and one of my favorites in the film, one of the most iconic ones is another one that was basically improvised and it it's when Tom Savini's character Blades hits the zombie in the head with a machete.
1: Yeah.
2: And that's an image that's pretty iconic. It's on a lot of posters and it's I I even the DVD I watched, that's like on the DVD. And what that was is the, the guy who plays that zombie was on set. He had some other jobs on set and he's like, man, everybody else is getting to be a zombie. I wanna be a zombie. <laughs> so he goes to George and he's like, man, can I be a zombie? Like, I wanna, I feel like I'm missing out on the fun. And 24 hours later, they've got this scene set up. And what, basically what they did is they ran blood tubing through the actor's hair. And then they cut a groove into the machete that's in the shape of his head put the machete on his head and then Savini pulled it up and then they shot it in reverse. So it looks like he's hitting him in the head, but and the movement is so fast that you don't see that there's actually a groove in that machete, a head shaped groove in the machete. So it's a very simple, very low five, very effective s- shot. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's impressive that Savini could come up with these concepts in such a short amount of time.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. He's a master, obviously.
2: Yeah. That's why we're talking about him yeah
0: exactly
2: (laughs) all right so despite the fact that the cast and crew practically lived in this mall for four months basically being isolated from the rest of the world because they had to sleep during the day uh, it seemed like a pretty fun shoot overall like everyone that you you hear in interviews talk about this they're like it was a blast and Romero described it as the mood on set was like a tailgate party and uh, Savini says you know Real life was boring compared with life on the set of Dawn of the Dead. Like you just wanted to be on set because it was fun. And because that's just kind of the, that's kind of the vibe that Romero wants. He wants it to be fun for everyone. He's like, we're not making, this is not brain surgery. We're making a zombie movie. Like this should be a fun environment. So it, it went by pretty much without a hitch. So, in December, the mall decorated for Christmas. And instead of going through the annoying and time consuming cast of pulling down the Christmas decorations and putting them back up every day because, so they could keep up with the continuity, Romero decided to suspend production. So, for about three weeks, they just stopped shooting. And during that time, Romero began editing the footage that had already been shot. So, he's still doing work on this. Uh, the original script for the film had Fran and Peter actually dying at the end. It was supposed to be a pretty bleak ending along the lines of Night of the Living Dead. They actually killed themselves. Uh, Peter, you, you see him in the film, hold a little Derringer to his head. And in the original script, he was to shoot himself. And then Fran killed herself with a helicopter. So basically <laughs> the way Romero describes it is they, they sh- actually shot a scene of Galen Ross in close up standing up and she was to be standing up into the blades of the helicopter, which is a fucking hell of a way to kill yourself. Yeah. Uh, that's how it was written. That it's quick. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully.
0: But that ending seems a little too Disney for me personally.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that this is where the cast that they made of her head that we mentioned a few minutes ago probably came into play. But they never shot the effects work. They never shot Peter shooting himself. They never shot any of the gore scenes for her death. They decided before they ever shot that, that that's not the direction they wanted it to go. And that this should have a little bit more of an optimistic ending. And Romero, like I said, he wanted this to be a reflection of a different decade. He wanted it to be a little more fun, a little more comic booky in tone. And it, He knew that he wasn't trying to make as dark of a film as he made with night. So he wanted the ending to be less dark as well. So he changed the ending to where the heroes survive. So for the music in the film, you know, we talked about in night of the living dead, how Romero so perfectly used uh, stock music, library music. This time he used the same thing. He used library music from DeWolf Music Library, although there are some original pieces of music in the film from frequent Argento collaborators, Goblin, or as the credits oddly call them in this movie, The Goblins. <laughs> uh, and that, that music, by the way, The Goblin score is the primary score for Argento's slightly shorter cut of the film, which was released as Zombie Overseas. Uh, and honestly, like, I like both versions. I like the Argento version of this a lot as well. Uh, I like the Goblin music a lot better than what Romero does, as, as well as he used the library music in Night. I think some of it's kind of goofy in this movie.
0: I, I would agree with that. I think it is very goofy at certain points. Um, I, I don't recall specifically anything about the Argento version, although I think Goblin would work as... Uh, this this movie just feels like a nice Italian horror film at a lot of times. Um, yeah. But uh, I I will say I, I did I was I was doing a little bit of research on that just curious about it and uh, you know I think Romero felt like Argento didn't get the humor he was going for in his well
2: version. yeah well in, in Romero's version or I'm sorry in Argento's version he does cut a lot of the humor out but I think part of that's also that maybe he didn't like it having humor to it at all but also a lot of those jokes aren't going to translate to European audiences and I think Argento knew that. That I think he knew what would play with the audiences in Italy and cut the stuff out that he just thought would not work that wouldn't translate to uh, a different
1: a different country. Yeah,
2: that's, Was, that's a good
1: point. Did it did did the narrative get altered at all between the U.S. and European versions?
2: No, the 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 story is the same. Okay. there's some there's some character stuff cut out, some exposition. Um, pretty much all of the humor, all of the funny stuff is cut out. Right, and it's actually a much it's kind of a faster edited film, honestly. Um, And I think it's good. I don't think that either, I honestly don't think either version is superior to the other. I think they're just different. Uh, Mm -hmm. A lot of times when you talk about alternate cuts of movies, like on Blade Runner or something like that, you can go like, yeah, but this is like the version of the movie. Uh, I think Romero's version and Argento's version are both really, really good and feel different enough to where you can watch them both and, you know, Get enjoyment out of both of them for different reasons, but Argento's does come across as a little bit darker mm. because he cut out the levity. But it's really good. I think it's a, and I love the Goblin score. I think it's great. I'm a big fan of their stuff anyway. But I think that their their work on the movie is actually very very good. Generally, I like them.
0: But yeah, it's. I'm glad he didn't stick with the ending. At least I really like the ending of this this film a lot. Yeah, better. I did too. And especially if you're if you're playing it light so light in some places like I feel like the the dark ending would be so much more hard to take I don't yeah like as opposed to like night where everything stayed very
2: serious the whole time right yeah I agree and I think that was part of their reasoning behind it honestly so just like he had done with Night of the Living Dead Romero once again showed the newly completed Dawn of the Dead to executives at American International at AIP who if you'll remember passed on Night of the Living Dead But And they requested that he clean it up a bit to get an R rating. They wanted it to be R rated. So Warner Brothers requested the same thing. They requested that this be cut down to an R rating. But Romero and Rubenstein, they refused to budge on that. Rubenstein was determined to prove that there was an audience for this film as is in the unrated, gory form. So he actually rented out a theater in New York City entire theater and he took out a tiny little 1-inch ad in the New York Times and that was pretty much it for advertisement so they just wanted to see how it went and he was sure that people were going to show up for it and he was right when romero showed up at the theater that evening there was a line around the block to get into this movie That's awesome. and it showed it showed very well the audience loved it and that very night the filmmakers made a deal with united film distribution to release the film and to release it on their terms in the version that they wanted to
1: release it. Sweet. Yeah. Stick to your guns.
2: Yeah. The distributor chose to release it unrated instead of letting it be branded with the dreaded X rating. Because at the time, I mean, you had movies like Midnight Cowboy that were rated X, but at the time, X rating was still pretty much seen as a symbol for pornography. Right. If a movie was rated X, it was a porn. And they didn't want that stigma on the film. They didn't want the film to be seen as obscene. So instead of getting the MPAA to rate it and give it an X rating, they just released it unrated. So because it wasn't released with a rating from the MPAA, that meant that some newspapers wouldn't print ads and General Cinema Circuit refused to book the film at all. But aside from those two things, the release
1: was still a major success. I was going to say that might actually, I I would think, you know, depending, you know, you know, thinking about the movie's general fan base, something like that might actually be a draw. It might actually work to their benefit.
2: Sure. I mean, we talked about that on Night of the Living Dead, how I think Gary mentioned that censor, censoring something and saying you, you can't see this is a surefire way to make sure people are going to want to see this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Know? I generally feel that way about most things, yes.
2: <laughs> so because... Uh, including when you
0: hide your, your wiener in those pants. <laughs> I just, that was my go to.
2: I don't know. Sorry. I don't know why that's your go to.
1: <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's very well known that Gary definitely wants to see my wiener.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, in its first week uh, after opening, April 1979, the film raked in $900,000. And that was only in New York City. It played in 68 theaters in New York City, made almost a million bucks. It made enough in its opening week there, in, just in New York, to basically pay for the film and for its advertising. Like it was all of a sudden, it was immediately profitable, basically.
1: That's awesome. Uh,
2: combined with the overseas sales because it was released in, in Italy like seven months before it was released in America. That's why a lot of times when you, when you look this up like on IMDb, it's listed as a 1978 film even though it didn't come out in 79 here in America because it was released in, in the latter half of 1978 in Italy. Nice. So it continued to do well in the following weeks, not only in New York, but across the country. And reviews were really good too. Roger Ebert, who you'll remember, wrote a pretty damning review of Night of the Living Dead. He called it one of the best horror films ever made in his review. And that's a pretty common thing to hear about the movie. Like you, if it, this movie oft it always gets listed on, you know, a list of the greatest horror films of all times. And, and even more often, on list of the greatest zombie films of all times it is generally considered i think george romero's greatest achievement it's his most popular film i think and i mean why do you why do you guys think that is why do you think that out of everything else that romero has made this is like the one i mean night of the living dead obviously very groundbreaking but this one i feel like has an even bigger fan base what do you think guys think it is about this movie specifically that out of all of its filmography that people have look, just latched onto.
1: I think because, and we've talked about this, uh, or I've mentioned this before in different things with both you guys. But I think you know when you look at when you look at most narratives as being a combination of three different elements: plot, story, and characters. Uh, this one nails it, uh, na- nails all three of those elements. You know the the commentary on consumerism uh, in America. You know you've got two hours of of solid plot, and you have such a condensed cast in these, you know, four, I'll say four, uh, main characters in this condensed area that, uh, we really get to see a lot of their development over time, uh, over the period, like you said, of, of weeks, potentially months, uh, in this one area that it hits all of those things. And, You know it's definitely it's definitely a a conversation starter of a movie of hey what would you do if which gives it uh which gives it uh longevity i think uh just because you know there are still shopping malls today and yeah there's some uh, yeah there's there yeah there's some (laughs) they're on their way out yeah
0: they are also zombies now
1: yes they are
2: they are the living dead
1: But yeah, I think this one just hits all of those three primary elements so well that it gives it that longevity that most films lack.
0: Yeah, I think it's just one of those lightning in a bottle things. And I think Romero, God, I was watching it this time, just like looking for signature Romero stuff. And besides, like the uh, ones we're talking about, like the bigger ones with, with consumerism and that sort of thing, I mean, I feel like he's throwing stuff in this movie all the way through it. There's like a segment where. The zombies get in, and uh, by the way, he calls them. They actually get called zombies in this. Which yeah, yeah, nice. for the
2: first time in a Romero movie. Yeah, um,
0: but there's a point where they like invade. I think it's like right with the biker gang and uh, bus in, but they like knock over. Uh, no, yeah, because it is the biker gang. They're attacking the zombies, but they like knocked out a TP at one point, and then attack this lady wearing like full like. I mean, she seems like she's kind of dressed in African uh apparel and like has like they're ripping the jewelry off her neck and the stuff off her and i was like man i feel like he's really like he is just throwing it all in right now yeah, like he's just yeah. like i would i would to give you some damn symbolism if it's the <laughs> last thing i do <laughs> but uh you well know, and, and in the fairness with ebert by the way i meant to say this and i muted myself but ebert's review was really more about the fact that there wasn't a rating system at the time um sure yeah he, we talked about that yeah, well, and I'm just saying, I mean, we're talking about he was kind of harsh on Night of the Living Dead. He actually likes the movie, I think. And if you go back and look at the review now, uh, I mean, his review now says three and a half stars. And he said at the time he didn't even rate it because he he enjoyed the movie. But he thought there was something more important to be said about the fact that there were children like in the screening and that wasn't the place for them. And then he felt like he wasn't even actually getting to review the film to right. warrant like a rating. but. I just want to be fair to old
2: Raj because sometimes... Hey, we love Raj. We yeah. love Raj. He's, he's, he's one of the... He's cited as one of the greatest, you know, movie critics of all time for a reason. We love him. Right. Uh, we right. don't always agree with him, but we love him. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I think one thing that you guys haven't touched on and, and why you think this movie is so well-beloved is that it's just a lot of damn fun.
1: It's oh, just, yeah. yeah. It's just a fun <laughs> movie
2: for, like, yeah. gore hounds. Like, Savini's effects are top-notch, groundbreaking yeah. stuff because at the time... You couldn't go to a special effects school for like makeup effects. That didn't exist. There it exists now. Tom Savini has one in Pittsburgh that he runs. But at the time, like Savini had to teach all of the stuff to himself. He just had to figure it out on his own, which it's is cool. By the way, it's making some
0: badass face masks for everybody. Yeah, he yeah, is like the that. like the
2: Jason masks and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's one of the things that draws people to this movie as opposed to some of the other Living Dead movies is that this one is just really, really fun. It's a blast. It's it's uh, it's colorful. It's comic booky, just like Romero was going for,
0: you know? I was, I was thinking of fun. Um, it, it made me wonder too. Uh, what, what, maybe you know more about this, like what happened with him and Russo that it, they just couldn't get on the same page exactly.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what their disagreement on it was. I, I couldn't find much more information about that other than they just didn't didn't agree on the the direction.
0: I I wonder if it was just that Russo really wanted the zombies to start yelling for brains. <laughs> so <that was> it. <laughs> Romero's like, no, 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 no brains. Because I mean, if you look at it, it's like I I would have I would have bought that like Romero's trying to keep some seriousness or some. Like grounded a little bit more and return of the living dead like goes a little more off the wall and stuff with like tar man and all that stuff like you can almost buy that except that in dawn romero's obviously having a lot of fun too and so like he's not opposed to blowing heads up and chopping them off with helicopter blades and right. stuff like that so i i, I don't know i was I'm just interested in that
2: well, I think another thing with this film is that this is, I think this is the time where Romero really embraced his legacy. You know, like we talked about in those films in between Night and this one, that he was sort of trying not to make a horror film. You know, he was trying to avoid being pigeonholed as a horror filmmaker. But here he decided, he, like, he embraced it. I'm a horror filmmaker. This is what's going to pay the bills. It's going to let me have fun. This is it. Uh, and he would make some other non-horror films, not many, but he would make some. Uh, but he primarily played in the playground of the horror genre until his death in 2017. And with, with Night, he created the, you know, the, the modern zombie film. But with Dawn, I think this is where he cemented himself as King of the Zombies, George Romero. Uh, and, and he included that over-the-top bore that is typically associated with zombie movies. Yeah, I think that one
0: of the things that's made zombies, I mean, there's a ton of things and and you could argue all day long, not even argue, really, I think most people would agree like zombies are super played out. Or every time I I submit myself in that position, like somebody makes a zombie movie that's really badass and I'm like, oh, you can still do things with this, but uh, that out of the way uh, one of the fun things about zombie movies that you always think of is, yeah, how many different ways you can murder a zombie, and so I guess it gives you, like, some kind of, a uh, catharsis, like, you've got kind a side of, to like, just, like, fuck somebody up, <laughs> like, you can yeah. feel better that it's a zombie and not a real human being, like, it, you feel, like, a little more okay that <laughs> it's, that it's a monster, yeah, yeah, but, uh, there's that part, and, uh, I don't know, man. Maybe, maybe there's something to do with what we talk about with movies like Halloween and that sort of thing. Like where night is located in a cabin in the woods sort of feel, uh, there's, that still feels a little distant and from, from like normal society. Or it can. You can separate yourself from that. Whereas in Dawn, he is setting it right in the middle of the city like right in the thick of it, like where all the people are, where you would feel like, surely, surely in Pittsburgh, they'd shut this shit down fast, right? Like they would, everybody yeah. would quarantine and they would close off things.
2: Well, they're, they're more in the city at the beginning. They're more in the suburbs, I guess, when they're in the mall. But that, that's also sort of turning what night did on top of its head. Like in night, they're in a farmhouse and they're being told by the radio and the TV that uh, get to the city is for safety. Yeah, that's then a good you point. find out. Then you find out at the very beginning of this movie in that newsroom that hey, all of these safety zones that you're telling people to get to might be run or run over, and the the characters in this are working to get out of the city because it's more dangerous, and they're on their way to the country when they come across the mall. Yeah, yeah, and then and then, but then even then, when you land in the mall, like the mall
0: at, at especially you know, going into the time that this movie was going into, it, it would be it would become like a central spot for humanity
2: yeah, absolutely. to be in, you know. Yeah. So
0: uh, maybe
2: you could just feel something there too. So Dawn of the Living Dead went on to gross $55 million worldwide, which is the equivalent of about $218 million today. It did very well. Uh, and as we mentioned before, one of those international releases was Dario Argento's cut. Uh, that cut runs a about a minute shorter than Romero's cut. And as we discussed before, it's pretty significantly different. But uh, the interesting thing, I, I, I touched on this before, but the interesting thing about this film is that all of the cuts are pretty good. So if you're going out to look for this and you see like various run times, I don't think you can go wrong with any of them personally. Even the what's, what's referred to on like DVD and the, there's an upcoming 4K Blu-ray release that just got announced of this that uh, there's a cut called the, the Khan cut that Romero originally, the version of Romero originally showed before premiering the film, uh, which ran a little Edited by bit.
1: James Khan? Yeah, yeah, that's it, Gary. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was because John Harrison was revealed to be Khan. So oh, oh I thought it was something like that. <laughs> I knew he'd take it into Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I went with James Khan.
2: They, I, so I, I appreciate both Todd. <laughs> I appreciate the the, uh, the comedic timing and just the comedic minds that I, that I get to do this podcast with. It's just it's just overwhelming.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: We're underpaid. I tell you.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh man! So United Film Distribution head Honcho Salah Hazan Hazanine. I'm going to fuck that name up. Hazanine. 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 Salah. We're going to call him Mr. Salah. Yeah. Anyway, he was very that. happy. He was the guy who who made the deal in the theater that night. He was very happy with the results of the film, and he signed Romero and Rubenstein's Laurel Group to a three picture deal, which would include Day of the Dead and an unmade film called Invasion of the Spaghetti Monster, which of course is a, <laughs> harkens back to that idea that they had uh, prior to Night of the Living Dead. It's kind of a sci fi spoof, but the first also the film, a lot about
0: Italian racism. <laughs>
2: But the first of the films to be made under this new partnership was Romero's long gestating and highly personal film, Night Riders. But that's a story you're going to have to wait a couple of weeks to hear. We're not talking about that next week. We're going to skip to, we're going to skip that for now because next week we're taking a kind of a weird little detour on this, this journey of Romero and Savini's careers with a film that was not directed by Romero. so the only film we'll talk about in the series, not directed by Romero, but it was created by a group of people who all met while working on Romero films. And it's probably the most obscure film that we're talking about in this series, although ironically, one of the easiest ones to find streaming. So it's out there again, uh, and, and we'll always say this, but you can go to the show description on here or, or on our website at cinemashock.net. Uh, we'll have a link to where you can stream any of the films that we're talking about on various streaming services. But the movie we're talking about next week is from 1979, the year after, after Dawn of the Dead. It's a film called Effects, and it stars Mr. Tom Savini himself. Oh, yeah. I've never seen it. Me neither. I don't think any of us have. No. I don't
1: have never so. seen it either. So, so is this, is this going to be our first Does Todd Hate It? Oh. Um, I thought Martin was the first one of those, but <laughs> not not a, well, not officially. I'd seen it, uh, well. It's did, up to you guys. Did Todd hate Dawn of the Dead? No, no, I, I, I'd seen that one before. It's, okay, yeah, it's Dawn of the Dead.
2: Yeah, Todd might hate effects. We'll see. <laughs> get your <laughs> get your, get your votes ready. <laughs> well, do you guys have anything else to add, Gary? No. <laughs> No, that, sound, I, that, <laughs> that no sounded like you either didn't mean it or you were doing a Christopher Walken impression. <laughs> I was thinking about, well, all that was crossing my mind is I was like, is this that movie effect?
0: But it's not the same movie I'm thinking of. Not uh, special effects
2: from the 80s. There, well,
0: that movie was F- just not called- Not FX. Yeah, not FX. Not FX. No, it has no, like no.
2: Brian Dennehy in it. Nope, it, Brian Dennehy is not in this film. That's too bad. (laughs) We'll get into it next week, but this film premiered in 1979, but did not get uh, officially released until 2005.
0: Oh. So.
2: (laughs) Not the same. Not, definitely not the same movie, (laughs) but it should be a fun story to talk about. So we'll talk about that next week. Uh, In the meantime, go rate and review us on Apple and and Spotify and all that stuff. You can find out where to follow us on all the social medias, uh, probably just by searching CinemaShock or go to cinemashock.net. We have links to everything, links to everywhere that you can subscribe, our Discord, our book club, everything is on that website, including we're going to be doing some blog posts. We're going to have some special guest writers and things like that. So that'll be your central hub for all things Cinema Shock, including links to where you can find the personal social media uh, accounts of all three of us, me, Gary, and Todd.
1: I'm at, this is Gary Horan. I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I'm at Justin underscore Bishop
2: until next week. May the wings of Liberty never lose a feather. I like the thumbs up Gary. Yeah.
0: It's going to translate well to the audio version of this. Well, it would have, nobody would have known if you'd have just kept rolling with it. That would have been a special (laughs) Easter egg for video versions.
2: You know what? Be excellent to each other. Unlike what Gary's being right now, (laughs) which is an asshole.
1: Johnny has the keys. Oh, no, Todd. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yep. Until, no, you guys, until, until you guys figure out what out I'm out saying of of by it, Johnny has the rolled, keys.
0: You could have rolled with like, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. I mean, that's oh, a pretty no, iconic catchphrase. No, for a
1: quote no. you,
2: Johnny so the, has the keys.
1: Johnny has the keys. That's not it. No, we. it's not our job to come up with your sign off. I know. I've come up with my sign off. It's Johnny has the keys. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be a t shirt someday.
0: Uh, <laughs> stupid. Let's end All right. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.